Good to see everybody here this morning, in spite of the snow. Being a weird winter. Please turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Do you like puns? Anybody like puns? Yeah, I like, I like puns. I wouldn't say I'm very good at them, but I like them at least sometimes. Here's one. Once upon a time, two Eskimos sitting in their native canoe were chilly, so they lit a fire in the craft. Unsurprisingly, it sank, proving once again that you can't have your kayak and heat it too. Yeah, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah, pardon me. I think it illustrates a, a pretty important point, though. What do we do when things that we want come into conflict? As an example, let's say, purely hypothetically speaking, you understand, someone, somewhere, wanted or needed to lose weight, but he also really wanted a donut and a piece of pie with ice cream right after dessert. Now see, this is an example of wanting things that are in conflict with each other. What's the solution here? Now, I've got one, okay? Let me see what you think of this. Here's my solution. A large hot fudge sundae and a Diet Coke. Yeah? Okay? That's going to work, right? No, Brooke's shaking her head. It's not going to work, is it, Brooke? No, not going to work at all. How about this example? A Christian couple... Christian couple wants to gain status and recognition in their congregation. So they sell some property and bring some of the money to the leaders of the church. In their desire to be admired by others in the church, they tell the leadership that the money that they brought was all the money that they received for the sale of the property. You know who I'm talking about here, of course. It's Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira wanted recognition. And, and they thought that making an impressive donation to the church would bring them that recognition. But they wanted to, believe, to have people believe that it would be a greater sacrifice for them than it actually was. And I hope you remember how that turned out for both of them. Peter told Ananias that they had lied not to men, but to God. And then Ananias dropped dead. When Sapphira came in, she confirmed the original false story, at which point Peter asked her why they had put the Spirit of the Lord to the test, and then she dropped dead. Okay, how about a modern hypothetical? Let's say you're a mechanic who's also a Christian. You get an offer for a job at a repair shop that does a lot of business, the pay is good, and the hours are convenient. The only thing is that part of your duties involve lying to customers about the repairs that their vehicles need so that you can charge them more than they really need to pay. Well, times are tough. Jobs are difficult to come by. And repair shops do this kind of thing all the time. So what do you do? Oh, did I mention that you've got five kids and all kinds of bills because there were complications when the youngest was born? What do you do? Wouldn't it be easy to rationalize and say that it's only business, that you're really putting your family first by taking the job and following orders? What do you think would happen over time to the Christian commitment of a person who makes that choice? You can call it what you want. Having your cake and eating it too, or trying to have it both ways. For today's message, I'm calling it straddling the fence. 
It all comes down to the same thing, trying to find a way to have two or more things at the same time that are or should be mutually exclusive. This is the situation in Pergamum, the third church addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It seems that the Christians there really stood up for Christ when it came to matters of persecution. At least one member of the congregation there had been killed for his faith, but some of, at least, some of the Christians in Pergamum had compromised doctrinally. They wanted to follow Christ, but they also wanted to participate in activities that would be pleasurable for them or somehow in another way advantageous for them, even though those activities were inconsistent with true discipleship. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as we prepare to learn from the letter to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there, or you have there some, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. Okay. Now here's Pergamum up here, right? It's the, about, about 50 miles uh, from Smyrna, or 85 or 90 miles from Ephesus. Of the seven churches of Revelation, Pergamum lies farthest north. Okay, we were going in that progression. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, the rest of them will come around uh, after this. But here, here we are at Pergamum. Unlike Smyrna, much of the ruins of the old city of Pergamum exist today near the modern city of Bergama, very much like the old name there. Pergamum was strategically located near both land and sea trading routes, making it a center of commerce. More significantly, it was a political center, Rome's administrative headquarters for Asia. As with Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was a center for emperor worship in its region, uh, and that's how these were divided up, by the way. That's, uh, let me just go back to that for a second. Um, we have, these, we have these different districts. You know, you've got Lydia here, and you've got Mysian, and, and, you know, Phil, uh, these are different regions. And so each one of these is a center for emperor worship here uh, in its area. People would come from around to those cities to worship the emperor at the temple there. And so here we see um, this is the ruins of the temple to the emperor Trajan that was built there sometime after this letter was written, but not too long, uh, less than 100 years later. 
Now, atop the mountain overlooking the city was a huge altar to Zeus. You see this kind of framework around here, a big tree growing in the middle of it now, but in, in its day, this whole thing encompassed the, a large, very large altar to uh, Zeus. And uh, there's not much left there. Those what ruins were there were removed along with many other ruins for Pergamum, and taken to a museum in Berlin, the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. It's, I think that's weird, but that's just me. Okay, this is the model of what that altar looked like. According to several ancient texts, human sacrifice was practiced here until the early 4th century A.D., and this altar had already been in existence for over 200 years at the time John wrote Revelation. So the Christians in Pergamum who read John's letter were probably well aware of the detestable practice taking place there. Pergamum was a center of learning, boasting the world's second largest library at the time, having over 200,000 volumes by one estimate. Uh, this is, I'm guessing, I, I couldn't find a, a better picture. This was the library. There's not, not much left there either. Only Alexandria's library in Egypt was larger. Oh, and speaking of Egypt, it was in Egypt that papyrus was made. And you know what papyrus is, right? Okay, it's a paper-like material made. They, they'd take reeds that grew in Egypt. They'd slice them really thin, and they'd put out layers this way, and then they'd put out layers this way, and put out layers this way, and they'd press it down until it dried, and it'd make a, a paper-like uh, uh, substance that you could write on. Well, King Ptolemy of Egypt had banned the export of papyrus to Pergamum for the, re for the purpose of keeping the library in Pergamum at having less, uh, fewer books in it than the library in Alexandria, okay, the competition kind of thing. So in order to have more writing material, to produce more books, the residents of Pergamum had to develop their own writing material. They turned to animal skins. It was in Pergamum that parchment was developed, and it gets its name from the name of the city, Pergamum. Like Ephesus and, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum had a theater for entertainment. Uh, Pergamum was smaller than the other two cities. Its population was around 100,000 at its peak, I think. Its theater was smaller as well, was seating there for about 10,000. And it's one of the steepest theaters in the ancient world. You can see that's a pretty good repre representation. Yet it is said that the acoustics were so good that a whisper at the bottom could be heard in the topmost rows. Besides the temples and the great library, the pride of Pergamum was this. This is called the Asclepion. This was their medical center, a place dedicated to healing and to physical therapy. Uh, there was, this was medicine mixed with idolatry. And those who came to be healed appealed to Asclepius, the god of healing. One of the symbols of Asclepius was the snake, often depicted wrapped around a staff or a rod. Here you see uh, two of them. Here's one, here's the other one, meaning in the middle. Talk about that here. There are several origin myths of the Asclepius symbol that exist, but the one generally accepted as the most popular tells the tale of Asclepius examining a man recently struck dead by one of Zeus' lightning bolts, right? Startled by an approaching snake, the healer killed the snake with his staff. A second snake quickly appeared and placed some herbs into the dead snake's mouth. See that? Right? And thereby restoring it to life. 
Asclepius, so the legend goes, followed the snake's example and revived the man from the dead. As a tribute to the snake, he then adopted the symbol of the snake coiled around the rod as his own emblem. Okay, that was their story. Uh, this is the environment of the Christians in Pergamum at the end of the first century AD. In a lot of ways, it looks very much like our environment today. In addition to the emphasis on politics, commerce, learning, medicine, and entertainment, Pergamum was also a center for fashion. Now think about how any or all of those things appeal to people today. People are drawn to them, often at the expense of other commitments that they have made, such as those that they've made to family, or even the commitments that they have made to God. Let's look at the letter to the church in Pergamum and see how at least some of the Christians there were straddling the fence. Verses 12 and 13. As in the letter to the church in Ephesus and the letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus begins by identifying himself with an image found in Revelation chapter 1 where we have that extended description of Jesus. Here, he calls himself the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. This is the word of truth, or the word of God, described in Ephesians 6.17 as the sword of the Spirit. We're also reminded of Hebrews 4.12, which says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The description given of Jesus in Revelation 1.16 was, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So Jesus chose this image, with the, the image of the sword coming out of his mouth, to represent himself to the church in Pergamum, and I think we'll see why in a little bit. Each one of these letters starts with Jesus saying, I know. And then he goes on to tell them what he knows about their particular church and their particular people there. To several of the churches, Jesus says, I know your deeds. And he does mention something about the conduct of the Christians in Pergamum that he knows, but he starts with something different. After introducing himself, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Now, this is not the threat, I know where you live. Okay, that's kind of a threat. That's not what this is. This is Jesus telling the Christians in Pergamum, I understand why being a Christian is difficult where you live. He said, I know you live where Satan's throne is. Now, it's difficult to be very insistent on what Jesus meant by that exactly, but here's one theory. A throne is a symbol of power, authority, and rule. What would represent the power of Satan and the authority and rule that Satan had over certain people in Pergamum better than the great altar of Zeus on which people were sacrificed? To me, this seems to be the pinnacle of evil in Pergamum. I think a good case could be made for this to be what was referred to as Satan's throne. Jesus mentioned Satan again at the end of verse 13, calling Pergamum the place where Satan dwells. You know how cities 
put up billboards sometimes uh, with the name of the city, and then they put up something that the city's famous for. You ever see that? Okay, you're coming into town, you got the billboard out there. We've got one out here, uh, actually. Um, it says, um, welcome to St. Ignatius, home of Tim Ryan, Nashville recording artist. You ever see that sign? You ever wonder who that is? <laughs> with that guy, right? Okay, yeah. Um, I went to school with Tim Ryan, except I knew him as Tim Rulier, because that's his, his middle name's Ryan. That's become his professional, you know, uh, uh, professional name. But at any, any rate, uh, amazing musician. I mean, he was, grew up playing music, and, and he can hear something once and, and just play it for you. He plays guitar and probably a bunch of other things by now. I don't even know. But anyway, he, he's a musician. He became a musician in Nashville, born here, raised here. Uh, he's achieved enough fame to have his name put on a billboard out by the highway here in his hometown. You can look for it. It's, it's out. Uh, you go on the street out here past the Cynics. It's uh, on the right as you come up to the highway just before you get there, just past the community center. Okay. Anyway, according to Jesus, now, Pergamum could have had a sign that said, Welcome to Pergamum, home to Satan and his throne. Now, yeah, I know. I doubt that the city fathers would have put up such a sign. But Jesus would have. And Jesus is telling the Christians there, I know how difficult it is to be a Christian living in Pergamum. And when your faith, when the way that you live, your Christian walk becomes difficult for you, when you experience challenges and trials and even persecution and maybe, as we discussed last week, maybe even death on account of your faith, it's not that Jesus doesn't understand. He knows where you live. He knows what that's like. Jesus also tells them that he knows what they have done that is good. He said, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Now, Jesus doesn't mention Peter here, but we remember that even Peter one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples denied knowing Jesus three times on the night before Jesus was crucified. These Christians in Pergamum didn't deny Jesus even when persecution was carried to the extreme. And he knows who that happened to. It was carried to the extreme in the life of Antipas, whom Jesus calls my witness, my faithful one, now, I know I pointed this out before, but I think it bears repeating. The Greek word for witness is martus. There's a, another noun. You talk about somebody giving a, a testimony, marturion. It, it's all related. And from this, we get the English word martyr. Antipas was a martus in every sense of the word, as he witnessed for Jesus Christ all the way up to and including with his very life. Last week, we read Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. Let me read that again and include this time verses 6 and 7. Luke 12, 4 through 7. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Here's the part I want to get to today. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. 
And I find it really interesting here that Jesus mentions this Christian martyr, Antipas, by name. To Jesus, it wasn't some anonymous guy who was martyred in Pergamum. It wasn't someone whose name he couldn't quite recall right now. It wasn't someone whose name didn't really matter. Jesus says, it was Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus knew Antipas' name. Jesus knows your name. Antipas mattered to Jesus. You matter to Jesus. But as in all, or almost all of the letters, not quite, but most of them, there is a problem here. Verses 14 and 15. There at Pergamum, as with most of the seven churches, there's a problem Jesus addresses with the Christians there. The first problem, according to Jesus, and they're related, actually, is that there were some in Pergamum who held or followed the teaching of Balaam. And you might, some of you are going, yeah, I get that right now. Some of you might be saying, well, who was Balaam and why was this a problem? Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. His account begins in Numbers uh, chapter 22, if you want to read that later. Or I guess if you want to read it now, I don't care, whatever you want to do. Anyway, uh, but Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. Peter describes him as one who loved the wages of unrighteousness. In the Old Testament uh, account there, Balak, the then reigning king of Moab, called for Balaam to curse Israel. The Israelites were coming. They were coming to occupy the land. Balak saw that, didn't want that to happen, so he called this prophet, Balaam, to curse the Israelites. Now, at first, Balaam refused to go to Moab, but later he went, apparently out of some impure motive, probably like greed. And God caused his own donkey to speak to him and rebuke him. It was a bad day for Balaam. Balaam ended up blessing Israel four times instead of cursing them. However, through his counsel to Balak, a stumbling block was put before Israel, and Israel sinned. It says, the people of Moab invited the Israelites to the sacrifices of their gods. So the Israelites came and ate and bowed down to the gods of Moab. Numbers 25.3 describes what they did as joining themselves to Baal of Peor, one of the false gods. And it also says that the Lord was angry against Israel, and as a result, God told Moses to have those who participated in that idolatry killed. Bad day for them, too. In Revelation 2.14, we find the specifics of Balaam's counsel. It says, "...who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel." to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. The Greek here indicates that it was a trap on which the bait is placed when dis disturbed the trap springs, trapping its victim. By his advice, Balaam trapped Israel. Apparently, some in the church at Pergamum were setting traps to ensnare victims, perhaps with the goal of ensnaring the entire church. It says, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, it's not just the eating of meat, but the practice of eating meat along with or associated with idolatrous worship. In other words, there was compromise with the surrounding pagan culture on the part of at least some of the Christians in Pergamum. And we're seeing that straddling the fence imagery. 
They're participating in the church. They're standing up for Christ under persecution. They're following him over here. But over here, they're compromising and they're participating in idolatrous practices and they're doing what they want to do. The rest of Balaam's counsel included promoting acts of immorality or fornication. The term porneia in the Greek refers to illicit sexual relations. Likely, as with general pagan practices, fornication or sexual immorality was generally a part of idolatrous worship. According to Acts chapter 15, these were two of the four specific things from which the Gentiles were commanded to abstain. Acts chapter 15, the Gentiles, it was decided, would be required to abstain from uh, meat or th other things contaminated by idols, from fornication, uh, from meat from animals that had been strangled and not bled out, and from blood itself. In other words, the, cons the consuming of blood. Those were the things that the Gentiles were supposed to avoid and, and not participate in. The Christians in Pergamum were having trouble with at least two of these things. And there was more. The church in Ephesus was commended for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we're still not sure about everything that they taught. But here's one possibility. Those who practiced Nicolaitanism are probably mentioned in 2 Peter 2, where we find that they indulged in sensuality. Essentially, the philosophy of, if it feels good, do it. And they were participating in, in that as an element of their Christianity. In other words... They claimed, in order to be complete as Christians, they had to engage in every sensual practice because they couldn't overcome what they hadn't ever experienced. Can you imagine? Now, I think I know what the response would be if I stood here and told all of you, now, in order to overcome drunkenness, you must first experience drunkenness. Do you think I'm going to say that? How about this one? In order to overcome stealing, you must first become a thief. In order to overcome sexual immorality, you must first engage in sexual immorality. Now, I don't think any of you would accept or stand for that message to be preached here. But there were those in Pergamum who did accept that kind of message. And those who didn't accept the message still worshipped alongside of those who did. Now, you'll not hear that message from this pulpit, not if I have anything to say about it. But each one of us needs to examine our own lives to ensure that we are in no way compromising our Christianity with worldly practices. Even more importantly, we must be sure that nothing we say or do is putting a stumbling block in someone else's way or leading them astray. This is why, I think, Jesus chose the image of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword to represent himself to the church in Pergamum. You see, they were holding on to part of the truth, but not all of the truth. And in their compromise of the truth, they were weakening the faith they still possessed. It's not enough to hold on to a portion of the truth and to neglect or dismiss the rest. Here's an example. What would happen if everyone who drove a car, how many of you drive a car ever? Drivers with licenses, I'm guessing, hopefully, right? What would happen if everyone who drove a car obeyed half of the traffic laws. You pick your half, okay? Right? I, yeah, you've been improvement. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it seems like this is already that way already. But really, really, okay, because those things stand out. Most people obey most 
some probably all that, that they can, of the traffic laws most of the time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that because in spite of everything that we see around us, most of the time, most of the people follow most of the laws because otherwise it, it wouldn't work at all. You can imagine what that would look like. If, if people only obeyed half of them, one person might obey the speed limit but never stop at stop signs. That's going to go well, right? Mm -mm. Another person might stop at stop signs but dismiss the double yellow line as unimportant. Yet another person might have all those things under control but never turn his headlights on even at night. Think that's going to be a problem? I think that's going to be a problem. Of course, that one's pretty much self-correcting. It, it takes care of itself quickly. There's an even greater problem for those who want to accept Jesus, but only on their terms and not on his terms. One Christian might be great at professing the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but really not care about loving his neighbor. Another Christian might be devoted to doing good deeds, but also devoted to pursuing sexual immorality. Yet another Christian might be wonderful at teaching the Word of God, but he's making compromises at work because his love of money is greater than his love of the truth. The Christians in Pergamum were great at standing firm in the truth about who Jesus is, but they were pretty lousy at living their lives in such a way as to glorify him. So, Jesus gives the Christians in Pergamum the command to repent. You know, I think we sometimes see that command as simply an expression of disapproval. When we are told we need to repent, we may view it as though we're being told, you're wrong, you're bad, and you're worthless, so you need to repent. Now, while it is true that our need for repentance indicates that we are indeed wrong, I hope we can see the command to repent as something positive. Let's hear the command to repent as Jesus saying, yes, you are wrong, but I really want you to be right. I'm going to give you the opportunity to turn things around in your life so you can be who I meant for you to be all along. Instead of a message of condemnation, the command to repent communicates a message of hope, the possibility of a second chance, and the opportunity to change. The Christians in Pergamum really needed to pay attention to this opportunity. But Jesus gives them an or else if they don't. He said, or else I am coming to you quickly. The opportunity for repentance wouldn't last forever. And if they didn't repent, Jesus was going to come to them in some way. Now, is this a reference to Jesus' second coming? Maybe. I think it had more immediate application, though. The consequence that is given here is that Jesus would make war on the unrepentant with the sword of his mouth. The Christians in Pergamum, who needed to repent and who didn't repent, were going to have a confrontation with the truth, and they were going to lose. Last week, we listened to the words of Jesus as he encouraged the Christians in Smyrna to be faithful until death. And we said that this answered the question, uh, questions. How faithful is faithful enough? Faithful until death. Faithful for how long? Faithful until death. I think Jesus is giving the Christians in Pergamum the answer to the question, faithful in what way? These people had been faithful to part 
of the truth. Jesus told them to be faithful to all of the truth. And without that kind of faithfulness, there's going to be consequences. You might say they would be the consequences of straddling the fence. You know what that is, right? Okay, he who straddles the fence gets splinters in all the wrong places. Yeah. The Christians in Pergamum were trying to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And Jesus essentially told them, get off the fence and get back to where you need to be. To each of the seven churches, he tells them to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches, and then he gives a promise to those who overcome. The reward promised in this letter to those who overcame was threefold. First, Jesus told them that he would give them some of the hidden manna. We were talking about manna, and uh, we haven't actually gotten to the name of it yet in our study of Exodus in Sunday school class this morning, but uh, we've gotten to the point where God is giving it to them for the first time. And so we're very familiar with what manna is from that account in Exodus. The phrase hidden manna is a little more difficult to pin down. Manna, of course, the food that God provided for the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. So manna, sometimes called bread from heaven, was that which sustained life. Giving them the hidden manna, I think, is another way of saying that he was going to give them life. I think it's a reference to eternal life like the things that he promised to the other churches. The second reward that he promises here to the one who overcomes is the white stone. Now, the meaning of the white stone has been debated thoroughly. No real consensus exists, but one possibility has to do with the white stone functioning like an admission ticket. Sometimes people in that place and time would be invited to a special event, maybe a banquet, and they would be given a small white stone with the name of the host on it, or some other particular markings to prove that they had been invited. When they presented the stone at the banquet, they would be admitted. And so perhaps that's the picture here. And the third thing that was promised to them is the new name. The new name that is on the stone. Maybe it's the name of the host of the banquet to which the Christians in Pergamum, as well as we, are invited. The wedding feast of the Lamb. I hope you like the part where we get to this, where we peek at the end of the book. Okay, we're reading Revelation. We get to get a little glimpse. We're still in the, first, we're still in the second chapter, but we get a little glimpse of what's to come toward the end. In Revelation 19.9, in Revelation 19.9, we find these words, John writing, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It could be that the white stone is symbolic of being admitted. could serve as the admission ticket to that marriage supper. Those who have it get in, while those who don't, do not. And again from the end of the book, in Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, we find there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So the name, the new name on the white stone, maybe it's the, the name, it serves as a form of identification that says, I belong to Jesus. That's what Jesus promises to the one who overcomes. Pergamum was a center of fashion and wealth, learning, and what was for them modern medicine. It was an ideal atmosphere for Satan 
in which to have his throne and in which for him to reign. Jesus knew the church there was located in the midst of perversity and sin. And you think about our world. Today, perversity and sin are all around us, yet we find ourselves able to ignore it because we focus on the appealing elements of our culture. Even if we're not doing it, I think all of us at times are tempted, at least, to straddle the fence in several areas of our lives. Think about the area of fashion for a moment. That might include actual clothing. There is a way to express yourself through your clothing that's inappropriate for the Christian. But it doesn't have to be that. Fashion takes on more than just the clothes that we wear. It can be certain activities. It can even be the technology that surrounds us. These are all things that, that we might glory in while we ignore the sinful aspects that are present with them. Well, how about wealth? Both as a nation as well as individually, I think sometimes we tend to view the relative affluence of America and Americans compared to the rest of the world as a sign of God's approval. What we tend to ignore is that the greater the wealth we enjoy, the greater the responsibility attached to it. We are stewards of all that God entrusts to us, using those resources for his purposes and his glory. And too many times, and I'm just speaking on behalf of Americans in general here, we approach wealth as a tool of self-indulgence. Has God provided us with tremendous resources to use for his kingdom? Absolutely. That's this foot. Do we want to appropriate those and use them for our own selfish things and sometimes things that are not glorifying to him? Yes, we do. And that's the other foot, see. What about learning? You know, every society has exalted its centers of learning and repositories of knowledge. Education and the accumulation of knowledge can be wonderful things. I'm a teacher. I have to say that, and I believe it but only when pursued in subjection to God's revealed word. The first schools of higher education in America, tell me what these schools have in common. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Dartmouth. What do those have in common? What? They were founded as religious schools, exactly. Okay, With a focus on religious studies for every student. Today, Every sort of godless philosophy is taught at these schools and many others. There are campus-sponsored organizations that promote perversions that are euphemistically called alternative lifestyles. But they didn't start out that way. Education has that same double-sided potential. And medicine. Modern medicine is amazing. All of us, I think, benefit from advancements in that field. In a broader sense, we're really talking about science. The word science is supposed to mean knowledge. The danger here is that we will rely on our own apparent knowledge as a replacement for God and his instruction. Now, this error is clearly seen in modern society, but it's always been one of the downfalls of mankind. Think Tower of Babel. Oh, we got a solution to the flood. We're not going to get caught in that thing again. We, we're going to build us a tower. We're going to show God who's boss here. And they relied on themselves. There's no substitute or alternative to God's word. We must be aware whenever anything tries to take its place or whenever we're tempted to let anything take its place. And so today, there are three, in my opinion, three desired responses to this message. 
First, to the Christians who are faithful to all of the truth. And if you count yourself among those, I'm not going to disagree with you. But to the Christians who are faithful to all of the truth, I would say this. Keep a sharp eye on yourself relative to the world. Be aware of any temptation to compromise truth in order to get something you think you want. Remember that all such compromise, when we're compromising God's truth, all such compromise is evil. It is not worth it in the long run. To any Christians here who are faithful to part of the truth found in God's word, but not all, you're straddling the fence. You need to repent. Your need for repentance doesn't mean that you're worthless. In fact, it means that you are worth enough to Jesus that he is willing to give you a second chance of having a relationship with him like it is supposed to be. And I say second chance, you realize it doesn't stop there. As often as we find it necessary, he waits for us like the father with the prodigal son with open arms ready to receive us back even in our repentance there. Jesus loves us. He values us. He wants us to have that right relationship with him. And if it takes repentance to do that, then it takes repentance to do that. And finally, to anyone here who has never accepted Christ as Savior, who has never been immersed into him for the forgiveness of your sin, you need to know that if you're outside of Christ, you'll never receive the hidden manna, the white stone, or the new name. And what that means is you'll never have access to eternal life or entrance into heaven. But you can have all these things if you're willing to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior on his terms. It's not a decision that should be made lightly. But neither is it a decision that should be put off. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Now is the day of salvation. And if you're ready to begin living for Jesus, and to uphold all the truth about him and his word. And please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.